Bordered by coastline on three sides, Cornwall has a privileged access to the sea. Whether you're on the sheltered Cornish Riviera of the south coast which faces the English Channel, or you're bracing the waves in the north coast, riding alone on the Celtic Sea, the coast is by far the most prominent characteristic of Cornwall in the British imagination. Images of crystalline water, bright colored ice cream, and the legendary seagulls which love to take a bite of your pasties often accompany any mention of Cornwall. Yet for a group of artists at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, the Cornish coast represented something else. An opportunity to focus and develop, to grow and to capture, and finally, to make an indelible mark in British painting. Known as the Newland School between 1880 and 1940, a group of artists relocated to a small village in the Cornish coast, Newlyn, just on the road from Penzance. There, they focused their work on its surroundings. The Newlyn artist colony was composed of friends who had met elsewhere and either came home to or moved to Cornwall to further their practice. In her book, Under the Open Sky, the painting of the Newlyn and La Morna artist, 1880-1940 in the public collections of Cornwall and Plymouth, Catherine Wallace explained how their time studying in studios and ateliers in places like Paris, Antwerp, and Munich inspired this group of artists to concentrate on two main ideas. First, the technique of plein air painting from French painter Jules Bastien Lepage, which suggested painting mostly outdoors. Second, the square brush technique, which distinguished them from their contemporary British peers, and according to Wallace, allow them to be, and I quote, less distracted by detail when applying the paint and to move across the canvas more quickly, thus adding vitality to the making of marks on the canvas, end quote. Understood by some at the time as the most significant body of painters in England, the Newliners gave Cornwall a new pictorial identity. The Cornish everyday folk is registered in these beautiful paintings of fishing villages, countryside, and mining. Some artists' names might be familiar. Henry Scott Tuke, Stanhope Alexander Forbes, Frederick Hall, and Walk, Charles Napier Hemi. Instead, we're spending some time with someone remarkable, but perhaps a little less known. She is associated with a Newlyn school and was a close friend of Henry Scott Tuke and the sister-in-law of Hemi. I'm talking about a woman legend. Winifred Freeman, painter, artist, friend, and eccentric extraordinaire. Join us in this, our fourth and more experimental episode, to learn more about her and about Falmouth Cemetery. My name is Sherezai Garcia-Rangel, and this is On the Hill. On what used to be the dissenter side of the old Falmouth Cemetery, there is a Freeman family grave. It is located at the left-hand side on the path that takes you down the hill just after you've left the chapel behind and rounded a corner. This cluster of graves is hard to miss as there is a standing gravestone with a circular head which features a crucifix and which calls your attention to the family buried below. The standing marker reads, 
Of your charity, pray for the souls of William George Freeman and family. Rest in peace. The family grave is delineated by a square border that embraces all of the family graves. But my favorite characteristic of the family grave is the holy bush which grows out and up from between two of the granite slabs contained there. And distinctive too is a tiny blue plaque with a number seven, screwed to the right lower corner of the border of the family grave. Next to it, the reason for that number being there. Winifred Freeman, 1866-1961. This small rectangular granite slab is quite remarkable against the other three graves. On the right, the grave of Ellen Maria Teresa, a Carmelite tertiary, and her husband, William George Freeman. On the left, in another granite slab, Kate, daughter-in-law, and her husband, Bernard A. Freeman. And yet Winifred, still buried within the family grave, only has a little rectangle. I first heard about Winnie on my first walk through Falmouth Cemetery with Tony Casey the same book I mentioned last episode and which enthralled me so that I am now sharing the stories of the residents there. Just at the end of our walk, once we had circled most of the cemetery and walked down and back up again on the hill, Tony had a final story to share. That of painter Winifred Freeman, known to cycle across town with easels strapped to her back wearing pantaloons instead of the expected skirts of a Victorian woman. Oh, the scandal. I knew we would always feature Winifred. But why was she buried with less pomp than the rest of the family? Was it the choice of an artist to have what could be considered a more modern grave? Or is it indicative or something else? And how could we learn more about this artist and her numbered impact on the Falmouth Cemetery? We are doing something slightly different in this episode, as Winnie, you'll hear soon, was the painter who started the interest in creating walks around Falmouth Cemetery, inspired by those buried there. Those walks bring us here today. Instead of me telling you the story of Winifred, for this episode I've invited the wonderful Glyn Winchester from the Falmouth Art Gallery, who knows Winnie for longer and created the narrative that accompanies the artist's walks around Falmouth Cemetery. Hi, Glyn. Thanks for coming. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for having me. Lovely to talk to you about her. Yeah, she's great. Um, what can you tell us about Winifred Freeman? Well, her name was Mary Winifred Freeman, and she was born the 26th of April, 1866, yes. on Florence Place. So not right far here. from where we are recording today. Exactly. Um, and she was born into a very wealthy family of granite merchants. Mm. Uh, they were really wealthy, mm. and they were devout Catholics. Yes. So there were a lot of them. You know, mm-hmm. they, it was a big family. Yeah. They Their quarry was in Lamorna Cove mm-hmm. down in West West Cornwall. Yeah. But they never lived down there. Right. Because they had so many quarries all over the county, and they were based here. Mm. So, so Falmouth was a good place to look after everything. Yeah. 
yeah. from. Well, and they would bring the granite to Penryn right. to dress it. Mm-hmm. And then they would ship it out of Penryn. Mm-hmm. And Penryn was known as Aberdeen of the Southwest. Oh, I because, didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Right. It was um, John Freeman and Son. Mm. And they started it um, in 1849. Mm-hmm. And it lasted until 1911. So Winnie's father, William George, took it over. Mm-hmm. So he started when he was 22 with his father, John Freeman. Mm-hmm. And um, it was it was incredibly hard granite in the mm, morning. Mm-hmm. And they were very um, ahead of their time. You know, they built the quarry there. Oh, they were forward-looking and enterprising mm-hmm. uh, because they used a tram jetty and a steam-powered Blondin crane to lift the large blocks of granite. And, and it was quite precarious because they would go mm. in um, with the boat and it was, you know, they finally had to abandon ships, you know, because mm-hmm. they, they would put load it on to ships. But right. it was so rough, you know, ah, that often, of course, sometimes yeah. with the waves and the high tide, they'd have to get in the boats and take it out to sea, mm-hmm. you know, to rescue it. And so finally, then they moved on to horse and carriages, or mm. drays, were they? Um, land, land transport. Mm-hmm. So first by horse, and then um, steam traction engines mm-hmm. would take it. So from Lamorna to Penryn. Wow. To be wow. done. But some of the famous places mm. that you can find Freeman Granite mm-hmm. uh, is the steps of the National Gallery in London. Oh, really? Yeah. I've yeah. been there. Nice. I've walked yep. the steps yep. of the Freeman Granite. So there's loads of harbors, harbor walls mm-hmm. that were used. Um, you know, it was it was used worldwide. Hong Kong, I believe, it was wow. even used. So it was quite quite something. Quite a significant business for yeah, them. Yeah, for a hundred years. Wow. And they also built, um, do you know um, the Wood Lane Social Club? Yes. They built that. That was one of their uh-huh. houses as well. Right. So there's lots of free. And Freeman's Wharf, if you go to F- Penryn, mm-hmm. just before you cross the bridge. Yes. That's Freeman's Wharf. So that's wow. where they landed. That's where they and landed. And then send it off all over the world. So a lot of history that is still just right there around yeah. us. Yes. Wonderful. So we have her, a member of this Big, loving family, very wealthy. Um, what are her next steps? She's born in April 26. 66. 1866. Um, she was very well educated, mm. but she showed uh, an independent street very, very early. Mm. Mike Kanoga, girl. <laughs> <laughs> and at some point, you know, she said, I'm not going to get married. Mm. You know, ah, she said she actually yeah, said yeah. this not, is yeah. it I'm yeah. not getting married yeah. now, now I've gotten all this from her niece mm. Margaret Powell who mm-hmm. I met um, probably uh, nearly 10 years ago I suppose and right. um, and she was great Margaret she just mm. you know she really she, she wrote this little um, little catalogue for, yes. for the art we art have a catalogue in front of us Winifred Friedman um, 1866 to, I want to say, 1960. Um, Is that right? It was published by the Art Gallery and it's available there as well. Yeah, when did we publish it? Yeah, she died in 61. Published in 2008. Oh, 2008, mm-hmm. yeah. And it was actually thanks to Margaret, and he took Brian Stewart, who was the director of the Art Gallery mm. at the time, took her around, took him around. Yeah. The cemetery to show right. to show where Winnie was um, buried. Yes, he then he started researching mm-hmm. because a lot of the artists that we have in the collection mm-hmm. 
were friends, you know, yes, Victorian, during Victorian times, they were all mates because they yeah. all sort of lived in this neighborhood. Yep. And now they're all pretty much buried very they're close buried together. There. <laughs> yes. a, a lot of them, yeah. Yes, that's true. So um, she started it off. So when, when we found mm. that grave ah, and uncovered right. that grave, uh, that's when, so we put a plaque on hers and then, yes. then people started doing. So a couple, um, oh, Michael and Linda mm-hmm. Bigford did the research um, on all the artists who are buried in the cemetery. And that's what started the artist works yeah. in the so Cemetery. Yeah, so they gave me a huge pile of their research. So they went through <laughs> lots of local newspapers, Wonderful. lots of obituaries, lots of mm. memoriam, in memoriams. And and so I just, um, you know, piled, plied through that. And that's <laughs> where I got my walks from. Exciting. And, but with, um, with Winnie, mm. so she's buried with her mother and father. That's right, in the family vault, isn't she? Well, I know it says in this book, the family vault, mm. but actually what I learned later from Margaret mm. was that the Freeman vault mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. is in between, behind the two chapels. Right. Okay, closer oh, okay. closer to the one which if you are facing um, the cemetery the at the gates and, yeah. the, and the seas at your back. Yes. Okay. The, the chapel on the right would have been the Dissenters Chapel, right? And the one on the left was the Church of, of England. Yeah. yeah. So the fam- the Freeman family vault, which is quite big and it's covered in polished Freeman granite, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. pretty much just behind uh, the Dissenters. I think I've seen chapel. this. Yes. Quite big. Yes. So she'd always uh, hoped to to be buried there right. in that family vault mm. because she didn't really get along with her parents because of she course. was. So yeah. independent and didn't. Yeah. And for a Catholic woman at the time to say, I'm not getting married, yeah. that's that that's a, quite a statement. That was a real statement. Yeah. But by wow. the time she died at age 95 in mm. 1961, that vault, family vault, was full. Wow. And okay. she couldn't fit. <laughs> and so she yes. had to be buried with yes. her mother and father, which is just oh, around the corner a little bit. How lovely. The, yeah. So kind of forced to be together in, yeah. in that yeah. Yeah. in a way that it would have been difficult to be together yeah. in life. <laughs> right, yeah. how interesting. This is the first time in On the Hill that we have a photo of the person whose life has inspired us. In a family photo, Winnie is standing at the right, dressed up and wearing the most wonderful floral hat. And she's looking outside of the frame, purposefully, as if to imprint the film itself with her intent. All are looking straight at the camera but Winnie. It seems that this is how she carried herself. We have more to share about Glynn and her knowledge of Winifred and the Freemans, but before we do, let's learn a little bit more about the regulations for family bolts in Falmouth Cemetery. Once the Burial Acts of 1852 and 1855 were published, the way counties dealt with the burial of their dead became far more regulated across the UK. In Falmouth, 
following the work that started with Sir Robert Rawlinson's 1854 report on the living conditions of the inhabitants of the borough, the Falmouth Burial Ground Regulations carefully determined how the newly acquired land overlooking Swampoo would be used for the expansion of the cemetery. In this episode, we focus on what was expected from bowls and brick graves. Here is one of the regulations for this case. When more than one body is intended to be buried in a purchased vault or brick grave, notice thereof and of the number of bodies intended to be buried therein shall be given to the clerk of the board at the time of bespeaking the same, and such vault or brick grave shall be excavated to the depth of nine feet for two coffins and eleven feet for three coffins. Each body buried in a vault shall be enclosed in an airtight metallic coffin and each body buried in a brick grave shall be separately entombed, and the masonry enclosing same hermetically cemented, and the depth of every such vault or grave shall be recorded in the register. The regulations were specific. They even indicated how a grave like this might open. Vaults and brick graves shall be opened from the top only, except by special permission. It is interesting to see how things like class and social economic standing made their way past life into the eternal rest. Wooden coffins only shall be used in common graves. Copper cramps shall be used in the erection of tablets and monuments, and where bricks are used in the construction of monuments, etc., they shall be of the best quality and description. Falmouth Burial Ground Regulations, published by Order of the Board, John J. Skinner, Clerk and Registrar, Falmouth, 2nd of December, 1856. You can still find wooden crosses in Falmouth Cemetery, marking some of the humble burials right against beautiful and expensive monuments of the well-to-do Falmouthians. This is quite different in the modern cemetery, where the immediate perception of the graves perhaps shares more with the modesty in ornaments to the war cemeteries we described in episode 3. But Falmouth is a high Victorian garden cemetery, listed and preserved almost exactly as it was then. So it will continue to teach us about Falmouth and history, if we care to take a look. I've been reading about the bolts and the regulations of the cemetery for the bolts. Ah. And you have to kind of announce in advance how many you expect to be buried oh there, which is a really interesting thought. It's like, yes, yeah, sign me up for four. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, but the, there's loads in that vault. Yeah, I would imagine it's, so. Actually, I don't know the facts about this, but I mean, it mm. probably is one of the largest family vaults, I'd imagine. I mm. hadn't thought about that before, but I think... Yeah, maybe we can dig into yeah, that. Yeah, then we should look into no that. No point intended. <laughs> <laughs> so we have her in a deeply re- religious Roman Catholic family but in a community where Church of England was strong. Well, Church of England was strong, but also in Falmouth, uh, the Quakers were incredibly That's right, strong. exactly. That's yeah. w- that was what I was going to say yeah. as well, that and you had the, the Quakers here. as well. You had the Jewish yeah. community. And few, the Jewish community. So, um, you know, years actually, Falmouth has well. always welcomed um, it has, different hasn't it? people. Which what, this is why we have this cemetery rich of difference. Yes, um, yes. Which is and this one is why two people love. with different accents are That's speaking. right, about <laughs> it. <laughs> Um, we have, um, so she's remarkable for a new number of things. We have this woman quite early on saying, yes, I'm actually going to just live by myself, um, which is rare. We yep. also have her studying art. Um, yes, so she went to Bushy. That's right. Um, in Hertfordshire. 
And even though um, Tuke had grown up here, mm-hmm. and um, they didn't meet until um, so oh, Henry okay. Henry Scott Tuke, yeah, uh, they didn't meet until they were at Bushy. That's and right. He was there. There was a six year. He was six years older than her. I believe. All oh, right. And um, but they they really uh, admired each other's mm-hmm. sense of independence. Yeah. And he was quite a cyclist himself. I think they might have had some. Cycle nice, rides. fun, yeah. fun cycles yeah, yeah. around. Yeah. Um, one of the things I first learned about her on my first walk to the cemetery with Tony Casey, um, he he walked me back to the entrance through that um, that grave where she's buried with her parents. Yes, um, and it's this idea that she the thing she he said about her was that she was cycling around town. Uh, she smoked a pipe, I think. Well, no, it was a cigar. A so cigar. She, so that's she what it was. was. She was very well known around town. Yeah. Because she also did make a living out mm-hmm. of selling her paintings, which is another of the yeah. really remarkable things. It's hard yeah, for yeah, any artist to because be able to make because a living. really, I think they pretty much disowned her. Ah, okay. Um, so she did make a living selling her own paintings. Mm. But uh, in order to cycle around Falmouth, which is very, very hilly. It is. <laughs> and at the turn of the um, 20th century, wearing long skirts mm. was just not practical. Mm-hmm. And so she wore men's pantaloons. Right. And that caused scandal. What a sight. Yeah. Yeah. That no, You know, women just didn't do that at the turn of the 20th century. And then to add to the scandal, <laughs> scandalous nature of it all, she, she did smoke cigars mm-hmm. copiously. Ah, right. And in public. And women did did not smoke in public. Of course not. Yeah. But it must not have hurt her because she did live to be 95. Yeah, she <laughs> so did. Quite a long life across know. two centuries as yes, well. Yes, yeah. I've I've read that she she studies with Henry Scott Took. Um, she shows quite a talent for watercolors. That was her chosen medium. Yeah. Yeah. And she that's, concentrated on watercolors. It is, yeah. Was it... Was that the same case for the rest of the Newling School, or no? She just chose something different to and focus on. I would imagine. I mm. don't know if this is a fact, but I would assume that they were very portable as well, mm. because she did move around. She did, quite didn't a she? Lot. And she traveled. She did travel. Yes. Tell us about. So she that. went to Canada mm. uh, with her brothers, mm-hmm. and she's got some amazing photographs, like the Cascade Mountains in Canada. Yeah. And um, you know, she just she could just do amazing things mm. with uh, watercolors. Snowy and then landscape she, as well. She traveled um, on her own throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. And again, that was quite unheard of. Exactly. You know. She must have been such a good person to just hang out with. Well, yeah, it, well, yes. Uh, but her, the, um, so Margaret remembers her so as, you know, she was the elderly aunt, mm. um, that she was very stern. Mm. Right. And, um, and was quite prickly. She had a beard. Oh. <laughs> not a real beard. Not, but, you know, you know, I mean, she was yeah. quite elderly, you know. Yes, you know. of course. Um, but, you know, but I think she had a good sense of humor. I thought I you meant prickly like her attitude no, was no, no, prickly. No, 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 I wasn't no, no. expecting that. <laughs> no, no, no. no that, she did say that. She, she did have, you know, facial hair, you know, towards the, towards the end there. Right. But, um, but actually, what she a she had a very detail. sad end, though, because... yes. I I read she had a stroke. She was um, going down. Well, the she moved to um, right, St. Yeah. Ives in she 1926, mm. and um, she had a stroke mm. uh, in mid 50s, I suppose. So, she, and so so she had a stroke while walking on this 
really, really steep hill, uh, mm. Skidden Hill, and she mm. rolled back down the hill, and you know, and she was confined confined to her bed um, yeah. the rest of her life. But her saintly neighbor mm. Agatha Johnson looked after her Look after for her, her last eight yeah. years. So that was quite. Um, so she must have mm. um, instilled loyalty. Yeah, I was thinking that you know because she had a big family, but I don't think mm. they didn't live in St. Ives. They didn't, no, and no. she had moved away yeah. Um, yeah. from them. Um, that's very sad for someone who had been so active, so yes. very specifically moving around exactly. yeah. as an artist and looking at different spaces, then to be confined in bed for a long time. Um, it's good that she did all that traveling before, at least. But when when she died, they said the Requiem Mass for her? Yes, I had that written down by her friend, yeah, Father, Father Delaney. Delaney. Yeah. Um, but then, and she died in the summer, during the summer holidays. Mm. And so all her, lots of nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews were yeah. there at her funeral. Oh, okay. So it was a nice, it was a family affair. Coming together, mm. yeah, at the yeah. end. Yeah. I also read somewhere that she had exhibited some embroidery. Yes, yes, she did, mm. actually. She did do embroidery. And actually, Margaret, um, her yeah. niece, did yeah. embroidery. Oh, wonderful. And then Margaret, as Margaret got older, um, was losing her eyesight. And uh. She couldn't do it anymore. But she, her house was actually covered in, in embroidery. embroidery. And she did, um, Winnie did some sculpting as well. It's very, okay. Small scale. Yeah. You know, but in clay. In clay. Yeah. Do you have any favorite Winnie Freeman's work? Well, that's a good question. We've only got about four of her works mm. uh, in, in our collection. Yeah. But seeing these ones of France when she went to France... Um, and she did portraits. And she, she did. did. I she quite did like very those. lovely portraits. I mean, mm. she was incredibly close to her sister Amy, mm-hmm. who was married to um, uh, Charles Napier Hemi. She did lots of their interiors of their house. So he built, built um, Hemi built a house called Churchfield, mm. and it was right next door to the Catholic Church. He was a devout Catholic ah, himself. Right. Okay. Um, Is that near Killingrow Street? Yes. Mm. So the one that kind of has a turret. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So if you look beyond it, down Kimberley Place, um, it's now called the Anthenaeum Club. Oh, right. But it was a Belgian uh, architect built it Mm. and he had it built. And, um, you know, and they had 10 children. So Amy Mm. and um, Charles had 10 children. Yeah. Two of them I have here. They're portraits. Dorothy Napier, Hemi, Philip Napier, Hemi. Quite beautiful they are. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's what I thought earlier when I was perusing <laughs> yeah, this again. Yeah. So she, I mean, she was multi-talented, really. I mean, and mm. I mean, highly talented, because not everybody can do this with watercolor. I mean, look, mm. there's subtleties on this. Uh, that's what I rug. really like about the, the rug, work. Yeah. Is how subtle and. I mean, that's she, a faded rug, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, she really conveys that. We're looking at a watercolor called Charlie, Charles Napier Hemi in his floating studio brought aboard the Vandermeer. Um, yeah, and it's absolutely beautiful. You can get a glimpse of the sea, which is yeah. quite lovely. Um, you have the cross as well, signifying probably probably there in the boat, but kind of that connection with religion that they both have. And actually, um He's buried in, in the Falmouth Cemetery mm. as well with his yeah. mother because Amy, his wife, died a few years later and mm. had moved in with one of her children somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But he's married, uh, I mean, he's buried in his, he had been a monk 
in he France. Been a monk. <laughs> yes. How wonderful. Um, and he's buried in his habit. Is he? Not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you find that detail? That, that well, the family. The you know? family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were we were really fortunate to have such a great relationship with Margaret. Absolutely, to be able to access yeah. this information. Yeah. It was during one of Glynn's artist walks that writer Anna Kiernan first encountered Winifred Freeman. Here we share some of Anna's poems inspired by Winifred, The Falmouth Cemetery, and other remarkable women. Bloomsday is a cod. I don't remember how it started or what happened next. The end was an opening, the beginning a stitch-up. You were 16 days late. I counted them, thinking you would join us, naturally, on the day it all happens, when Leopold blooms. But the 16th came and went. Two days later I began to shudder while we counted the minutes between times and the flailing knife of your slanting shoulder turned. Spinning on my axis, you swam inside until your heart slowed and the cut was made. Here comes everything, I thought. Here comes everything. The beaten track. A mud cast lost in the tall grass. A bramble scratch sculpted in blood. What about the space that's left in the shape of the mark, in the lay of the land? This path is a dotted line on a map, a cartographic promise. My faith is pinned between these folds and the deep drop against the far-off highway becomes a fall. As tyres cut through bluegrass, then flinch as the bike bucks at barbed wire. I am catapulted forward, the map lost, the spokes caught in memory turned inside out, where the lost space of reversals hurts less. Epitaph for the Unrequited The graveyard coolly sets out its store, a flea market of secret posies and stunted sentences. Like books, the rites outlive the form. Like libraries, archaic intrigues whisper to themselves. Stone spines stitched up with ivy binding, author notes hewn by hand on slate, neglected, sunken. An archive of lost looks, a database of bones. This place is an, as organic as Ophelia's floral rant, columbine and sweet violet. No wonder they doubted her. Fidelity sits ill with adultery. The overlooked repose in rich earth, shedding spores beneath blood sap hues. I'd been thinking about ruins and dereliction. Cemeteries can be seen to represent lapsed time and memory and are often overgrown and forgotten. But it is almost impossible to build on a sacred site. And so the project of gentrification in urban areas often stops at the gates of the cemeteries. I had in mind two graveyards when I wrote this poem. Firstly, Dolwillam Churchyard in West Wales, which is located at the top of the track that we lived at the bottom of when I was growing up. 
My grandparents and schizophrenic great-aunt are buried there. Auntie Molly was subjected to electric shock therapy during her life and was often institutionalised. I remember visiting her in a home as a child. She would smoke by putting her thumb between her two forefingers and puffing on her hand. The second is Falmouth Cemetery, which was consecrated in 1857 and in which many artists happened to be buried, including Winifred Freeman, who lived from 1866 to 1961. Freeman was regarded as an eccentric and would cycle round Falmouth in knickerbockers with her easel strapped to her back. She smoked cigars in public. Pick Me Up, a chapbook of poems by Anna Kiernan, illustrated by Harriet Lee Merrion. I had the opportunity to sit with Anna and talk about Winifred's cemeteries and poems. Hello, Anna. <laughs> thanks Hello. for coming to talk to us. Hi, um, thanks for having me. It's great to hear this range of information into these beautiful poems. Um, and I was very glad to see that there was a connection with our project on the hill. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We are not looking into this too widely into the pro in the project because it's covered by the Falmouth Art Gallery. But there are quite a lot of graves and there has been a lot of work done about the artists who are buried in the cemetery. And you chose to write perhaps about one of the most interesting ones, Winifred, which you mentioned earlier. What, how, do you remember how you found her? I think it might have been through um, a tour with Glynn from Falmouth Art Gallery. Yes. Um, and she does this wonderful tour where she takes you around the cemetery. That's you may right. have done it yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and she spoke about this character, Winifred Freeman, and I was just fascinated because she seemed such an independent spirit. Indeed, yeah. And I loved the fact that she um, defied convention. Mm. And I loved this idea of her, her as an independent artist and the fact that she smoked cigars. <laughs> and all of these wayward, <laughs> or, you know, they would have been wayward at the time. But yes. of course now, they'd, no one would think anything of it to see art students going around town on bikes yeah. with, um, well, perhaps they would with easels on their backs. <laughs> But I just loved that image of a of an yeah. independent artistic person doing their thing. Already doing her thing. Mm -hmm. um, I read that she was also a devout Roman Catholic, which sounds quite interesting in, the, in that contrast between what would have been quite liberating, running around with her bicycle, her cigars, and uh -huh. the easel strapped to her back. Yeah. And yet this, this um, very conservative faith. Exactly. There must have been very... Um, strong expectations of mm. what she was meant to, in inverted commas, um, perform as a, a, a woman at that time. Yes. And certainly it wasn't um, what she did actually do. So Yeah, that's right. So yeah, that was the kind of starting point for mm. taking me into this kind of pocket of, of history. And, and it was also a way of connecting with Falmouth as a place, because of mm -hmm. course, Falmouth has a really rich heritage of um, artists mm. and um, makers and creatives, all of whom are drawn here for many of the reasons that we too are drawn here. Exactly. And that it's a creative cultural environment. And the university comes from that heritage. It does. And I like um, the fact that that connection is kind of carved into stone in the town. It is. I think that's a powerful thing. 
It is. And, and interestingly enough for me, as I've been doing this project, I've realized that so is the cemetery. Um, yeah. There are lots of graves and gravestones in Falmouth in places you wouldn't, you're walking down the stairs and then you turn around, there's five gravestones right there. Yeah. Um, we have some here in Fox Gardens as well in our campus. That's right. And up at Penryn campus as well. That's there right. Are gravestones. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it just, they tell these stories. They're kind they of, do. yeah, they're powerful texts. They are. So I want to talk about that, the poem where you describe the cemetery so mm-hmm. beautifully. This idea of um, books, of libraries that have ivy binding. Can you walk us through that one a bit? Yeah, sure. I'm just going to find it. Yes. Um, to our listeners, oh, we have I... Anna with her beautiful <laughs> chat book, Pick Me Up, um, which we'll put a link to in the website. Yeah, I guess it was a very, um, I suppose, obvious metaphor in a mm. way. This kind of, um, so it's like books, the rights that live their form, like libraries, archaic intrigues, whisper to themselves. Yeah. And so extending that metaphor, obviously, with the ivy binding on the stones. Mm. And I suppose the story's <laughs> underneath yeah. the stones in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Or perhaps it isn't. Perhaps it's um, the people, the story is carried by the people who continue to show an interest mm. in those past lives. So, yeah, that's that's really... It was It was thinking also about... Maybe it was thinking partly about people who don't... Um, have children, Mm. but who have this legacy. So this kind of idea of an archive of lost looks and a database of bones, this this sense of them, you know, having some kind of legacy that continues, some kind of heritage, irrespective Mm -hmm. of what their personal choices were, and that there's something important about that, perhaps. That is a question we've been asking ourselves as we created this this episodes. Mm-hmm. It's who gets to tell these stories. And, yeah. and it's a slightly uncomfortable position. It's very interesting for us to research it and to react to them as writers. But at the same time, it's like, do we have the right to go to those databases of bones, of buried bones? And yeah, that's interesting. And also, the thing is, is um, when people die, I mean, obituaries, for instance... Mm are written in such a way that whoever has died um, becomes this heroic person. Yes, we were just reading one today, and it's how remarkable they were. Yeah, how remarkable. And and also there's a kind of a a language of obituaries, which I love. I used to like Mm. reading the obituaries in the Telegraph because they were very good. And they would speak in euphemisms. So if someone was a terrible drunk who used to stagger around Soho, (laughs) it would be like they were a very sociable character. (laughs) And I really like that, the kind of reading between the lines of Mm. what the narratives are about people. So obviously, you know... We're, we're romanticizing this image mm. of Winifred because it fits with our ideal of a kind of construction of femininity that was rebellious in a kind of yeah. suffragette style yeah. of um, style way that we don't necessarily equate with this kind of rural idyll mm-hmm. at that time. Mm. Um, but obviously it's a reductive process as, is, are, yeah. as is engraving gravestones. <laughs> <laughs> that is very, very mm-hmm. much so too. Um, there's a lot of contrast between ends and beginnings, between birth and and life and before birth. All of that webbed webbed into this beautiful collection. Can you talk us? Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, it was so interesting um, for me to kind of look again at this book, which I haven't looked at for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I wrote these poems um, after I had my second son. Mm. And I think um, I love being a mother, mm. but there is a sense of, um, there is a tension. You know, there is a tension between doing your creative work mm -hmm. and um, doing the creative work of parenting. Yes. And both of those are, are kind of, um, very demanding roles and often women feel um, mm -hmm. that they are trying to strike a balance and a, a, a performing an endless compromise. And so I guess this poem was about, partly about exploring that mm. and a number of the poems uh, delve back in to uh, kind of historical references that link in some way to my Welsh childhood. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And some of them are about becoming Cornish in a way. So right. um, there's, there's one poem, The Beaten Track, and that's all about mm. um, kind of cartography. Yes. And so I guess, again, like the gravestones, it's about this having something ta tangital, something mm. that's kind of post a post-digital representation mm. of um, experience. Mm -hmm. And I find that very appealing because it's grounding. Yes. And that poem is actually about, refers to the ground. And I suppose, yeah, that's partly what I was navigating, was mm. this sense of trying to ground myself in a place that wasn't, um, it was an unknown territory, both in terms of being an incomer to Cornwall and being mm. a new mother. Mm-hmm. Two beginnings in, yeah. in their own way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I quite love that line where you said, he, here comes everything. Ah. What a beautiful word to think about maternity. Oh, thank you. Well, that one, as I'm sure you gathered, is um, that's from Ulysses uh, by mm -hmm. James Joyce. And that's one of the lines. And that's um, obviously from the initials of uh, a character in that book. Mm. Um, so the thing is, is my son, so this is a, a poem, Bloomsday as a Cod, is a poem about my son, Leopold. Mm. What a wonderful um, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who's obviously named after Leopold Bloom mm. in um, Ulysses. And I'm actually named after um, a character in Finnegan's Wake, Anna-Livia Plurabell. Oh, wow. So I guess I was creating a kind of dialogue between <laughs> our names, which sounds really pretentious, but we're allowed to do that because we're academics. I have academics. to say, to have a literary <laughs> name myself, Shahrazad, uh -huh. although I don't pronounce it that way, um, yeah. I do feel like tasked to come up with a really literary name for my children that I don't yeah. have. And you've, yeah. there's something very, um, I guess quietly performative about mm. being named in that way indeed yes. you know there is an expectation here we are sitting yeah. in the storytelling <laughs> storytelling um in you know the department of writing and journalism so yeah, yeah there's something in that isn't mm. it um yeah yeah who knew it would, it would come when they named us like that that it would come to this yeah <laughs> i don't think my parents had that in mind mm. um, but thanks i like my name let me think about uh, beginning of stitch up. Oh, I lost my train of thought. I'll call it's that okay. out. It's but we were riffing. We were riffing. <laughs> <laughs> um, this idea of becoming Cornish um, is something that I first started to think about doing something with cemeteries, mm -hmm. with a red roof cemetery where I used to live um, by St. Jean Church. And it's a beautiful place. And I found out that there was already something done with mm -hmm. that, which is um, 
a project by Wild Works and Petrikov um, oh, until the dawn, until the daybreak. And from there, I ended up in Falmouth Cemetery before we were here. And actually, this project has made me feel slightly more Cornish um, in my almost three years of living in Cornwall because mm-hmm. I have to find out what, what the people were thinking about um, when constructing and expanding that cemetery over and over again. What were the problems of the town? And that's what we've been discussing. But interestingly as well, I find that this is a cemetery where a lot of people who are buried there are not Cornish. That's interesting. Yes. Um, We have uh, a Jewish art dealer, Jack Gausticker, who was escaping Amsterdam and Mm -hmm. he died on the boat on the way to New York, I believe. Um, And he's buried there. We have a cabin boy from a ship um, who... The ship was torpedoed, he was the only victim, and he's buried there. So we have all of these people who ended up in this place kind of randomly because of what Falmouth is. Mm-hmm. It's a port, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a place where people were coming and going. Um, have you felt more Cornish through this process? You've been here for a while now. Um, it's an interesting question, and I think that's so interesting what you say about... Um, the kind of rich mix of people that you get, particularly in a marine kind of location and particularly in Falmouth as a kind of trading post. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I wouldn't presume to become Cornish, but what I want to do and what I've been trying to do through various projects Mm. is to become involved in community life. Yes. um, So that I'm part of... Um, the society in which I find myself Mm -hmm. and I think that's the kind of um, one of the most fruitful ways to show that you respect local culture is Mm -hmm. to kind of notice it and acknowledge it and talk to people and Mm -hmm. listen to people and get involved where you can whether that be in an arts project or in the local school Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the way I I see it but I I mean you know I think once you move away from where you were born Mm. you're in a sense striving for a sense of belonging certainly I don't know (laughs) what your experience is. No absolutely I I describe myself as a potted plant so I've been uprooted Mm -hmm. I have roots they are somewhere but they're kind of portable now yeah. So I've so, lived in different countries, but... That's right. And you're perpetually reconfiguring mm-hmm. your sense of self in relation to yes. the context in which you find yourself. Absolutely. And if you don't do that, then you're probably a narcissist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree yeah. with that. Yeah. I think also that you you add, you continuously add. There's not a finite definition of identity exactly. for me anymore. Yeah, I will. I am Venezuelan by birth. I lived there most of my young life, but I'm also Spanish by heritage. I've been in Scotland and I feel slightly Scottish, slightly Catalan, a little bit of yeah. everything. Yeah. Um, and I like the tension that that creates. I, I think it's positive rather than negative. I think having some kind of sense of tension in that way is um, is necessary, certainly for me, in mm. order to produce um, work that I find interesting and to engage with work I find interesting. Yeah. I'm also, I find myself reading on purpose things that I don't know. Mm -hmm. Especially the last year I've been doing a reading challenge and it's, I want to know about what I haven't been. So maybe I want to be there later. Kind of a literary tourism as well. Yes. 
Um, this is a question I've asked everyone. Um, what do you think your gravestone would say? I think, you know, fitting my lengthy name onto it. <laughs> As I said, it's Anna-Livia Plurabel Kiernan. Um, something, yeah, I think that would probably do it. <laughs> <laughs> you leave that to the artist. You yeah. figure that one out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They yeah. will have that problem with my name as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, Anna. That's a good really question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Oh, I enjoyed that. That's oh, nice. Yeah, yeah it's really nice. nice. I want to thank Glyn Winchester from the Falmouth Art Gallery for her generosity in sharing her knowledge of Winifred Freeman and for her constant support of On the Hill. I also want to thank Anna Kiernan for sharing her work and sitting down to discuss its inspiration. You can find her poems on her book Pick Me Up by Atlantic Press. You can see some of Winifred's paintings in the Falmouth Art Gallery. If you want to lend us a hand, tell somebody about this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps. Stay with us as in this season we discover more about the Falmouth Cemetery and those buried there, and we share new writing inspired by them. One of the songs you heard today is Blue Paint, Atlantean Twilight by Kevin MacLeod. On the Hill is written, recorded and produced in Falmouth by me with the help of amazing local people and a host of talented writers. Research about Winifred Freeman by Glenn Winchester. Research about Falmouth Cemetery by me. Fragments from the Falmouth Burial Ground Regulations read by Alex Horn. Creative Peace by Anna Kiernan. This episode was edited by me. Our theme song is Precious Things by We Are Muffy. Tony Casey and those involved in researching Falmouth Cemetery have created a Facebook group called We Love Falmouth Cemetery, which is constantly giving us more stories to investigate. You might want to take a look. We're still working on our website, but in the meantime, you can reach out to us on Twitter at We Are On The Hill. We would love to hear from you. Join us next month for a new episode. I am Sherezada Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill. <laughs>